1 Samuel 20 is where we're headed. As you're turning to 1 Samuel 20, we're going to go to verse 24. While you're turning there, years ago, I had a friend of mine, pastor of church, Vanita, Oklahoma. His name is Leo Bible. He was not only a pastor, but he was also a mechanic. He was a tremendous mechanic. Seriously, there's a reason I'm telling you this. He could, he was, he, he knew Chevys, he knew Fords, he knew Chryslers, he knew, he knew trucks. He, knew, he just, I've watched him, people start up an engine and he'd walk around, he'd put his hand on the hood, he'd walk around touching the car, listening and feeling. He'd say, rev it up a little. And he'd rev it up. And he had such a way with vehicles, and he was so experienced. Many times he knew what was wrong with it, just feeling it run. One time I had an LTD. It was old. Don't let that impress you. <laughs> and, uh, and it wasn't running right. Now, this was before the days of fuel injection. He did that. Before he ever popped the hood, he popped the hood. He got a light and he got a long screwdriver, long screwdriver. And he bent over with this light and this long screwdriver and the car was just, and he turned one apparently tiny little screw. I don't know if he went left or right, but he turned it and that car went, and he shut the hood and he didn't charge me 200 bucks he just patted me on the back said I'll see you Wednesday night that's what we did you know a lot of times in life it's not big huge monumental things that cause things to run rough. A lot of times it's just a little something. And I, I feel like the Holy Ghost wants to talk to us about something. Listen to me. It's not killing us, but we got a problem in Pentecost. In Pentecost, all across the board, we got a problem. It's not killing us because we're here and the church is going on. But it's causing the church to limp at best. We're limping. We may run, but it's not a full bore run. And this isn't the cure-all, fix-all. But it is a problem. 1 Samuel 20, verse 24, so David hid himself in the field and when the new moon was come the king, speaking of King Saul sat him down to eat meat and the king sat upon his seat as at other times even upon a seat by the wall and Jonathan rose and Abner sat by Saul's side and David's place was empty nevertheless Saul spake 
not anything that day. For he thought, something hath befallen him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're asking God that you would talk to us. That your spirit, your word, God, would minister so deeply into every heart and soul and mind under the sound of our voice. Hopefully under the sound of your voice. Talk to us, Jesus. Do your work, we pray. We commit this in our lives into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. Certainly may be seated. Now, the quick setting of this. The reason David was not at that feast was because he knew his life was in danger. He told David, or David told Jonathan, as much Jonathan at this point still was in the valley of decision, not positive that his father would actually be so diabolical as to try to destroy the giant killer. Can you imagine wanting to destroy the boy that killed that giant that we heard about last night? Why would anybody come to the place they would want somebody that valuable, that invaluable, to be slain? But he did. So David said, I'm going to hide out, and you do thus and so, and you're going to be able to tell by your father's reaction if I'm right or not. So the first day he didn't show up, Saul kept his peace, but in his mind, in his mind, he is stating, there's a reason David's not here. He's unclean. Surely, he's unclean. Now, King Saul's surmisings did not say one thing about David that was true. But that little surmising of King Saul spoke volumes about him, about where he was at mentally, spiritually, where he was at. Now, there's been a lot said about Saul, rightfully, it's been said that he was stubborn. He was rebellious, obviously backslidden, very vindictive, vengeful. He was pitiful. He became tragic. But I want to talk today about another aspect of this man. His pettiness. He was petty. He was petty. And because he himself was so messed up in so many ways, the thought of David that so many people loved, he showed himself so wisely, he behaved himself so wisely, his name was much set by even among Saul's own cadre of servants, that it, that it ate Saul's lunch. 
And he knew he'd been already prophesied that by Samuel, God's going to raise up a neighbor, sir. And he's coming to take your crown. That's the reason the day he killed Goliath, he said, where do you live, boy? What's your daddy's name? And he found out, I'm from Bethlehem. And he was a neighbor. So it sat in, the women sang the song, Saul has slain his thousands, David is tens of thousands. And from that moment, he eyed him, and it grew worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. You may wonder at my statement about his pettiness, but pettiness, and I'll give you the definition of it. The word petty in itself means if something's petty, it means it's, a, it's little or it's of no importance or it is inconsequential. The item situation may be of no merit. It's one thing for something to be petty, but it's another thing for pettiness to settle in into somebody's spirit. Because when pettiness gets into its spirit, what that means is that it views everything with a petty outlook. And it means that having pettiness means having or showing narrow ideas, interests, such as they have petty minds. Okay, everything has to go through the filter of their pettiness. Can I tell you here, pettiness of spirit, and that's the title that I'm preaching about today, pettiness of spirit. Pettiness of spirit. Pettiness of spirit always comes, please note, because of an undue, improper self-interest. Undue, improper interest in self. And that automatically narrows your whole world down. It doesn't matter who we are, what our name is. When pettiness of spirit gets a hold of somebody, they become ungenerous in matters, even trifling matters. It means the ability to show meanness or smallness of spirit. And little items demand revenge. Record keepings and score settlings over actual happenings or contrived happenings. But a petty spirit can be fed by most anything. Again, by name, by way of synonyms, we deal with paltry, trivial, trifling, something that is so insignificant as to be almost unworthy of notice. It can imply a lack of significance or worth, such as petty quarrels, something that is contemptibly small or worthless. Amen. Now, simply because I've lived long enough, if possible, you have to cover so many bases because there are petty minds that work overtime to say, yeah, but they didn't cover that base. So, 
uh, can I tell you that the preaching of the oneness of God, contrary to what's settling in on some people's minds, that's not petty business, brother. You hear me? That's big stuff. That's big business. The new birth message of repentance of your sins and baptism in water in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, the birth of the Spirit evidenced by speaking in other tongues as the Spirit. That's not petty! That's the new birth gospel! And we're not petty when we preach it! Holiness is not a petty message. I don't care what anybody says. That's just petty. No, 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 no. Without it, you won't see God. That's not a petty problem. Pettiness, pettiness. And so while we're there, can I tell you that, duh, preaching against and not having television and Hollywood movies in your home That's not petty preaching. That's huge. And it's important. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care who does it. And I don't care what your name is. It's not small. When the recent Supreme Court decision came down, one of the chief architects in Hollywood producing circles made this statement to this effect, we won that battle in the American home through the medium. We would portray gay, lesbian people in such a way that who could dislike them? And slowly but surely, America given itself to And when apostolics get into that business, come on, that's not petty. It's going to cost us. We got to wake up. We got to smell the coffee. We got to say, God, you're true and you're righteous. Our forefathers and preachers today, they know what they're talking about. It's not petty. Immorality is not petty. Amen. Involvement with organized sports, that is not petty. Jewelry, makeup, immodesty, that's not petty. Contrary, oh, he just, no, 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 no. And I'll make this statement and I'm done with that. The proof is in the pudding. But having said that, lest people say, well, you know what he was, we have to define, okay? But I do want to talk about pettiness of spirit, where seeming slights, something of trivialities, insignificances, take on huge large, portentous, crowding 
of goodness and wholesome and right thoughts because people give themselves over to the negative. However big or small it becomes imagined. Just to give you a couple of uh, examples. The Bible tells us of a man by the name of Nabal. I'm not going to rehearse the whole story. He's a very rich man. He has great flocks, probably herds, but at least great flocks. They come back, all of his servants and the sheep, they've not lost one sheep. They've not had their sheared wool uh, taken off by brigands because there was a group of men that were like a wall day and night round about him. And this year, you had no attrition, neighbor. He couldn't no doubt believe it. He threw up end of the year party every year. But this year, it was like, wow, dude. Well, then the man who had been the wall of protection round about showed up. A few emissaries said, these were David's men, by the way, and you're having a great feast, and we don't ask for that. Just a little bit of your munificence that you could send our way. We don't need much. And Nabal, who is David? Many a man runs away from his master nowadays. Well, he knew enough about that, apparently. And uh, he would not give him anything. This man who could afford anything, he was so petty. And, and his servants told his wife, the one with the brains of the outfit, they said, he's such a son of Belial, nobody can even talk to him. And if you don't do something yet one more time, our goose will be cooked again. So she had to go save the day. Now, I know the Bible says he was churlish. That means he's kind of a hateful bird. But I think pettiness goes in there too. He had undue self-interest and that narrowed his vision and his rule to where he could not see the sunrise coming or the sunset because all he could see was what he wanted. We read of a man by the name of Gehazi, Elisha's servant. And here, Naaman, the captain of the Syrian host, has been healed of leprosy and he wants to give a reward to Elisha. He does not accept it. But Gehazi gets his eyes off of God, off the will of God, off the call of God. And all he can see is the gold, the silver, and a Babylonian garment. Now, who knows what that would be worth in today's money. But compared to his leprosy that he had that was on him and his seed forever... That was paltry. You can't, there ain't enough garments in the world to cover up your leprosy, sir. And you get enough gold and silver out of Naaman to buy you 15,000 hospitals, but you're still a leper. And so what he thought was so big, because he had an undue self-interest, it made him petty and it cost him dearly. 
And we could go on, we could talk about Demas who loved this present world. And he left the Apostle Paul with this message. Well, his world passed away in the fashion thereof. And so let's just say the man lived for another 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Big deal. Big deal that he enjoyed his world. You hear me? He didn't even have hot and cold running water. He didn't know what a frying pan on a stove was. He didn't know about air conditioning. You you hear me? So what did he trade eternity for? Petty. Petty. Because he had an undue, unhealthy self-interest in his likes. If you really want to get it narrowed down, Petty, here is a man walking. His foots are full of resolve, but there's a heaviness laden in every step. He's making his way first to Bethany, and then he knows he's going to Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to a last supper he'll ever have in this life. He knows he's going to face the high priest, Sanhedrin, Pilate. He knows he's going to be beaten till his back looks like a plowed field. He knows he's going to have the hair ripped from his face. He knows he's going to be covered with spittle. He knows he's going to be to a tree. He knows he's going to hang naked between heaven and earth. He knows the world's going to pass by wagging their heads. He knows all of this is closing in on him. And behind him are disciples fussing amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest. I'm going to be better than you. No, I'm going to be better than you. No, no, I'm more. And their pettiness is not going to stop Calvary. God's not going to be stopped. But the lesson gleaned out of this when it's all over is not going to be the heavy contemplation of what you were feeling, that you were buying into his burden that you were somehow hooking up into his load, that his heaviness was becoming your heaviness and his burden, your burden, and his will, your will. The story that will be told resoundingly was how petty you were. Undo self-interest. And then we could talk about one man in particular that was in the process in his spirit and in the upper room ever since a woman had broken expensive alabaster box and poured the 
ointment of the apothecary. And he started the whispering campaign with the disciples. This money, that's worth 300 pence. That could have been sold and given to the poor. Does Jesus care about the poor? No, no. Let's just waste it all. And it makes sense to carnal minds that are not hooked up to his burden. They're not feeling where he's at. And he picks it up and they're all talking it. You know, I've, I've found usually when there's talk, going on, you always wonder who started that little whispering campaign. There's somebody somewhere that got that little tune started and others picked up the ditty. And what's their reason for singing that little song? It's pretty interesting. Usually it has to do with undue interest. And he finally says, Let this woman alone! She's anointing me for the day of my burial! And when it was all over, And Judas Iscariot is hanging on the end of his rope and his last fleeting thoughts, I wonder was, I was so petty. So petty. Pettiness is big business, if we let it be. And... You ready? We all got to fight it. That's why I wanted to be down here with you. Because we all got to fight it. I don't care who we are. A few months ago, I was wondering, I just was thinking about, you know, the 9th of Av, which is our July and August. That's a middle there. It's a month, Jewish month. The first temple was destroyed 586 B.C. 70 A.D. on the 9th of Av. The second temple was destroyed. And uh, we know that Vespasian came. He was called home to be emperor of Rome. Titus took over. Eventually, after a three-year siege, they destroyed Jerusalem and burnt, destroyed the temple. And even in the New Testament, it talks about it. One of the disciples of Jesus, Simon Zelotes, meant that he was of the zealot ideology of overthrow Rome. Okay? And uh, so it had been around a long time. Paul in his writings talked about wrath coming unto them to the uttermost. Before it had happened, he wrote it. Okay? And I began to wonder, what was the trigger? What was the act that brought Vespasian? What happened? What happened? It's hard to find. But the Jews have it in the Talmud. This is what the Jews say happened. Okay, the, the discontent with Rome had been there a long time. Pilate had to deal with it. We know that. 
He was alive and well for decades. Rome knew it. The reason Rome was so interested in Jerusalem, and this is historical, and the Jews, I mean, they, it's, a, it's a preponderance of importance they placed on that part of the world, more than just being at the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. It's believed by the Jews that because of the diasporas that had taken place, that the Roman Empire, the population of the Roman Empire was possibly 10% Jewish. Now, we can't prove that. We don't know that. They can't either. But they think it could easily have been. So when 10% of your population is Jewish, you pay close attention. Because trouble is trouble. Not that they were all practicing. We know that they weren't. So this had been building and going, but this is what the Jews say happened. There was a man, a wealthy man in Jerusalem who had a friend by the name of Kamsa. And he had an enemy by the name of Bar Kamsa. This is before the days of electronic blah, blah. They didn't have a postal system quote per se. So he was sending out invitations to come and be at his feast. And he told his servant, invite Kamsa. The servant got it mixed up and he invited Bar Kamsa. So when the day of the feast came, not only did Bar Kamsa come, he was shocked that he got the invite and he thought maybe a peace branch is being offered. And so the servant showed him to a nice place of the feast. And so they were seated and important personages were coming in to the feast. And the master of the feast came and he looked and there was his nemesis. There was Barkamsa sitting. And so he walked over to him and he said, what are you doing here? Well, not everybody heard, but those local heard. What are you doing here? He said, I was invited. You were not invited. Get out. Well, he didn't want to be shamed in front of these people. He said, look, let me just sit it out. I'll pay for my meal. The man said, get out. A little louder. He doesn't want to be shamed. It's like Jesus said, you get invited to a feast, you don't take a seat in the back, you know. You don't want to be embarrassed. He said, I'll pay for half of the feast's expenses. Just let me sit it out. Louder, the man said, I said, get out. The man said, listen, I'll pay for the whole feast. I'll pay everything. Just let me sit it out. Now the man's enraged and in the presence, I said, get out of here! So it got very quiet in the feast. And the man got up and he is shamed. And he walks out. But he's not just mad at the feast holder. 
There were sages there. There were wise men there. There were priests there. There were leading city people there. Not one person tried to talk sense into the man. Not one person spoke, hey, look, man, just come on. Everybody just... So this Barkamsa was very mad. Now he's mad at the whole world because he's been shamed. And I will pay you back. And he stews and he brews. And what he should have did was get a lamb. What he should have did was find a place and say, God help me. What he should have did was go to the temple. What he should have did. But he let it brew and stew. And so this man, who was of no small means, he takes ship to Rome. And he goes to Caesar. And he says, you have huge problems in Jerusalem. Well, they'd heard that. They, they knew the stuff. He said, no, they're fomenting rebellion even as I speak. They're planning on making moves. You need to send your legions now and take Jerusalem. And Nero, who was Caesar at that time, you know, he was, he was not the coolest, smartest, but he was not the total village idiot at that moment. He said, how do I know you're telling the truth? And Barcumsa said, okay. Get your finest, get your best. Send it with an embassage. Your best sacrifice to be offered in the temple. They will reject your sacrifice and that will let you know they're against you. So, Nero does. And he sends the beast, didn't say what it was, he sends his Roman hierarchies. They go and they, they're impressive. They bring this impressive beast. But aboard the ship, Barcumsa, and it doesn't say what he did, but he maimed it. Maybe it was a cut. You know, a sacrifice had to be perfect so they would inspect it. He maimed the sacrifice. Knowing that if they were conscientious. So there was great debate. Here was this sacrifice. Here was this ambassage. And, and, and Nero is sending a sacrifice. One of the priests on close examination said, we can't offer this. It's not perfect. They said, this is the emperor's offering. And the other said, we don't care whose it is. It's maimed. So they rejected his sacrifice. And Nero said, well, you little Jewish turkeys. I'm not picking at Jews. My grandmother was Jewish on my mother's side. And so he said, all right. He started to come himself leading, bringing six legions. But according to the Jewish legend, uh, they asked one of the Jewish kids at a, at a yeshiva, what are the Jews taught? And this little boy said, we're taught that if anybody touches the Jews, God's against them and he'll get them. 
According to the tradition, Nero said, isn't that just like God? He wants to use me to whip them. And then when he's done with me, he'll just wipe me out. So he sent Vespasian to do it, according to the Jews. So here comes Vespasian with his six legions. And uh, the siege starts. Now, there were three very wealthy men in Jerusalem, many more, but, and they made their wealth from trade. One of them's name was Nachdamon ben Guriad, another one was Sinsid, Narcissus, the other was Kalba Savua. Between these three vast Mediterranean merchants, they had storehouses in Jerusalem. They would bring in foodstuffs, then they would send it by train down to a caravan, down to Joppa, etc. And then they would send it off through the Mediterranean. They were very, very, very wealthy. According to Talmud, their storehouses were enough to sustain Jerusalem for years and years. Some say 21 years. They had Hezekiah's water tunnel that had been built that was actually 18 miles long, according to some. And uh, so they could stand a siege. And they said, Vespasian is going to have to feed those troops year after year after year after year. That's going to get expensive upon expense. After a while, the Romans will sue for peace. But the zealots said, we ain't suing for nothing. We're going to have some blood. We're going to shed Roman blood. We're going to kill. And so they burned the storehouses and destroyed all the foodstuffs. So after three years, it was like the destruction of the first temple. They were eating each other. It was hideous. Titus came on the 9th of Av. 1.1 million Jews were slain in that war. 97,000 Jerusalemites were carried off to be slaves until the day they died. And I know there's a whole host, there's a lot of peelings to that onion. We know that. But isn't it something that one man's pettiness at a feast because he couldn't just sit down and shut up and eat his soup and put up with somebody he didn't quite like. He had to disrupt his whole little world because of undue self-interest. And before it's over, 1.1 million are dead, 97,000 are captives, and the temple's burnt, and the ark... So, we have to beware of pettiness. I hate to tell you this, it's not killing the church, but it's hurting us. Brothers and sisters, and everybody out there in Holy Ghost Radio Land, there's way too much pettiness among us. Way 
Too much pettiness. There was a teenage boy went to a local Jesus name apostolic church. Man, he repented. He got baptized in Jesus name, got filled with the Holy Ghost. He went running home to his grandma and grandpa's house. Said, hey, grandpa, I got what's called the Holy Ghost tonight. I got baptized in Jesus name. His grandpa said, where'd that happen? Oh, down here, such and such as it. Grandpa, you need to go. That's a good church. You're so. He said, I will never go to that church. What? I said, I will never go to that church. Why? I used to go there 30 some years ago. You're kidding. Yes, and I'll never go back. So the boy sits down. Well, Grandpa, what, what happened? He said, the church bought a grand piano. And some wanted it on the platform. I don't guess the platform wasn't quite big enough for that. And some wanted it on the floor. And he said, there was quite a wrangle. And I didn't get my way. And I said, I'm out of here. I ain't never going back. My opinion don't mean nothing there. And he said, well, Grandpa, what side were you on? Grandpa, what side were you on? Hey, Mom, what side was we all on that piano deal here? He couldn't even remember if he wanted it on the platform or the floor. It was so stupid and so petty. And now he's lost and going to hell. He'd be just as happy if his grandkid died lost too. Pettiness will kill you. There's somebody here under the sound of my voice. Many, many, many years ago, and you well know, you saw a church split because of a vacuum cleaner. Some people didn't like, I don't know if it was the brand or the amount of money or it was new or who bought it, but the church split over a vacuum cleaner. Now in the big scheme of things of the whole world, Lying in wickedness and going to hell. That's a big deal to split over, isn't it? I would say there's undue importance placed on somebody's self-interest. And going into, from a petty vacuum cleaner to a petty spirit. To a petty mind. And it can get worse. I want to be I want to be careful how I say this. Many years ago, I caught a plane and I flew back east. When you live in California, everywhere is back east. In this nation. And I didn't fly to Arkansas. How's that? I didn't, I promise. But I sat down with a personage of um voted in influence, etc. Who's having a real problem because me and 
Brother Wilson, you know, everywhere he goes, there's trouble. So we, uh, we had a little group, and we had this guy going to come preach for us at this meeting called PSR. But he wasn't in the group we were in. And so there was real problems. So I flew all this way, and I'm sitting down, and I said, look, you know, come on. We're just... And uh, I said, if you'd be nice to the guy, he might even join us. He said, he will never be in this movement. I said, why? He said, he's pastoring a church that was not started right. And I knew, I said, now, that's over 50 years ago, right? Yes. The pastor that started, that's dead, right? Yes. There's been five pastors at that church, right? Yes. I said, the church has moved five times throughout the city, right? Yes. I said, every original member is probably dead or moved, right? Yes. But it wasn't started right now. Never get in. Some of you are saying right now, you shouldn't be telling that. I'm not I'm being careful. If they don't get some stuff under the blood, it will be told at judgment. I'm sorry if that doesn't come under the qualification of penny. God help us, what does? Or sometimes, and Brother Kenny Godair, I remember you told me something here a while back. I can't, where you at, Brother Godair? Kenny Godair? I love you. He told me something a while back. Maybe it's because God knew this message was coming. It rocked me. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. You didn't either, but your dad did many years ago. His dad told him this from years ago. He was at a church and there was a sinner man. He was a backslider. I don't know where he'd done. I don't know where he'd been. I don't know what happened. I don't know the history. But the man came to an altar and he was heaving and he was sobbing. Forgive me, I, the pastor came up and said, you made your bed, now lie in it. And the man stopped like we're stopping. And he got up and he walked out and he never came back. And he died lost. I'm going to tell you something. God has a problem with petty stuff compared to eternity. So God's dealing with about this. And I said, all right, God. What about me? I want you to talk to 
breathe in. I'm going to be very careful how I phrase this. I'm not saying if they were saints or ministers. I'm not saying if they were young or old. I'm not saying what they did. I'm just telling you that there was a a couple made a decision. I didn't find. But I will tell you this. This is what God, I mean, I realized. I didn't talk about them. I didn't speak of them. I didn't. I did not. But I let a wall come down. I did not say good or bad or anything. I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. And there was a couple of times little things were done to try and fish for a response. I didn't speak. I just didn't do nothing. I kept trucking, going down the road of life. They make their decisions. You know, life goes on. That's fine. That's their business. That's what God talked to me about. He said, all right, Larry Booker, you listen to me. They are going to need you someday. They will need you. But because of your undue self-interest, you have put yourself up a nice little tidy wall. You smile, you, but you put up your nice little wall. And when that day comes that they need you, they won't feel like they can come to you. Because they'll feel that's something. And I said, God, forgive me. Why does it make any difference to me? I'm sorry. I said, show me how to lift the veil. Show me. And he did. And it is duly lifted. And when the day comes, I will be there for them, hopefully, by the grace of God. And many such like things. He's talked to me. You know, there is a verse that says, catch us the foxes, those little foxes, because they can spoil the vines. So, God, wherever pettiness shows up, let me take care of it. I got a good friend of mine told me years ago. He was preaching for Brother I.H. Terry. Brother Terry, anybody that knew him, he was such a unique human being. And he did this to me, taking me around, show me Bakersfield, show me the buildings. But he uh, had horses back when this man preached for him. And he took him out to show him his horses, and he just pulled up, and the horse trough was out there, and water! The horse trough was running over, the faucet was on, mud. And Brother Terry sitting there looking at all that water and all that mud. He said to my friend, do you see that? He said, yes, sir. He said, I know who left that water on. Yep, I'm 90% sure I know who left that water running. 
He said, do you know what I'm going to do? If you knew Brother Terry, there's no telling. He just said, he said, no, sir. He said, let me tell you something, son. The whole world lies in wickedness. He reached down and he started folding up his pants. He said, I could run that man's day, maybe his week. He ain't going to fix nothing, ain't going to hurt anything. He said, you know what I'm going to do? What? He said, I'm going to go turn the water off. He stopped out there and he turned the water off. Can I tell you, we'd do a whole lot better if we just turned the water off. A man named Samuel Johnson, he's the second most quoted English-speaking person in the history of English-speaking. Samuel Johnson. The only man that's out-quoted him except for the King James Bible, of course, is Shakespeare. What people don't know is the reasons, one of the reasons Shakespeare is so popular was because Johnson went through his works. And it was a hodgepodge until Johnson took many of his major plays and fixed up what various people had messed up down through decades. So now Shakespeare is the most quoted, but he probably wouldn't have been had it been for Samuel Johnson. He is the man that in 1754 produced the great dictionary that until the 1920s was the premier English-speaking dictionary. 42,000 words, 114,000 sentences of definitions. And there was a man that was going to be his mentor, his, his benefactor, who was going to help keep him supplied in money, accessories, until it was finished by the name of Lord Chesterfield, very famous man, man of letters himself. Chesterfield never did one thing. But when he saw the dictionary after nine years was about to come out, he wrote a glowing report, published it in many periodicals about Samuel Johnson, because he wanted him to dedicate his dictionary to him. So Johnson wrote him a long letter. Here's just a tiny part. Seven years, my Lord, have now passed since I waited in your outward rooms or was repulsed from your door, during which time I've been pushing on my work through difficulties of which it is useless to complain and have brought it at last to the verge of publication without one act of assistance, one word of encouragement, or one smile of fear. Such treatment I did not expect, for I've never had a patron before. Is not a patron, my Lord, one who looks with unconcern at a man struggling for life in the water, and when he has reached ground, encumbers him with help? The notice which you have been pleased to take of my labors, had it been early, had been kind. Had it been delayed till I am indifferent and cannot enjoy it, till I am solitary and cannot impart it, till I am known and do not want it. And it hit the British papers. It was the talk of London. Lord Chesterfield was one of the most known personages in England. Everybody's like, ooh. 
He had many, many visitors to his house. When you walked in the main entry, there was a great table there. You know what Chesterfield did with that letter? He laid it on the table for everybody to read. That would come by his, they would see one letter and they would stop and and they'd realize, have mercy, this is Johnson's letter. They said, Lord Chesterfield, how can you do that? And he said, that's too good of English language. Have mercy. I don't like it, but that's too good not to let people read. And he killed him. He killed him. He could have got mad. He could have fought. He could have screamed. He could have went back into the newspapers and created a feud forever. He put it on his table. Everybody read it. They got a good laugh and they went their way. And what we do sometimes with slights, I think we need to just turn the water off. I had a friend of mine, an evangelist, Brother Claiborne, just told me this story. It was 1952. There was a man who worked for Zion National Park. They lived outside Zion National Park. They had an old pickup truck, beat up rough. And they had an old Packard. It was 1952. Father was very hardworking. Worked, say, paid cash for a new 1952 Chrysler. He had a 14-year-old son, turned 15, didn't have a driver's license, but this is out, this is 1952, and I'm at Zion, and who cares? He's going to go pick up some of his friends. They were going to do something that night. And he came in, his dad was on the bed reading the paper, and he said, Dad, I'm picking up four guys. Do you suppose I could borrow the Chrysler? Dad, he said, well, you're always good with the Packard. You've always been careful with the truck. He opened up the drawers. And he threw the boy the keys to the Chrysler. So the boy, he went out there. He started it up. He's ready to go. And he noticed it was almost out of gas. So he he jumped out and he ran in. Hey, Dad. Dad. And he said, what, son? He said, it's almost out of gas. I ain't got no money. Can I have like three bucks and fill it, you know, 17 cents a gallon. You could do that. So he gave him three bucks. And, And when he came out, The car was gone. And he's looking. And where they lived, there was a ravine. 
and he saw the taillights of the car. It had, he forgot to set the brake. He left the engine on. It was not in gear. And he saw the taillights as it went over the edge. Down the ravine where it wrapped itself around a tree and was utterly destroyed. He's 15. They were not wealthy at all, at all. He goes back. Dad, Lord, what, son? He thought about running away. He thought about jumping off the ravine. His life as he knew it, he thought, was over. Dad, I forgot to set the brake. The car rolled off into the ravine. I'm sorry, Dad. It looks totally destroyed to me. So the dad laid down the paper. And while that boy's standing there, he opens up the drawer, fishes around. He said, well, I guess you're going to have to take the truck. And he threw him the keys to the truck. And the boy gets in the truck. And he's driving down the road. And he pulls the truck over. His world as he knew it, he thought was over. Now he's sobbing. Because he said, my daddy loves me more than he loved the Chrysler. family friends would like to say something the now man got up and he told that story and until that moment not one member of his family knew anything they never knew what happened to the Chrysler how it ended up and dad would never talk about it
other up. Not gossip. Carry big little grudges. Because somebody sat in our pew or took our spot on the parking lot or wore the same dress. down deep in my heart. Turn whatever valve needs turned, but God, life's too short to live in pettiness. Foolishness. I'm done. That's my message. And right now is the most important part of this service because the Holy Ghost is looking at everybody and saying, what does this mean to you, sir? What does it mean to you, ma'am? Come on, mama. Come on, daddy. Come on, young person. What's this mean to you? As for me and my house, Jesus, every time it crops up, and it will, this ain't the cure-all. I want to see it for what it is. I want to rip it out. I don't want pettiness to rob us of what God has in store for this kingdom in these last days. There's no telling the revival that awaits us if we can set it not the stupid little things that keep us from banding together. Is there anybody maybe want to pray? Anybody maybe want to talk to God? Anybody maybe want to say, Jesus, search me, God. Find, see if there's any wicked way or petty way. I want to love like you love. Come on, sir. Stand with me. Oh. 
close to you. Come on, let's believe together. Oh, God, help us today, Lord. Oh, God, I love you. I love my brother. I love my sister. I want to be saved.
let's lift our hands and thank the Lord for the word of God we have heard today. Come on, we've been blessed. We've been enriched. Our lives are made better by the word of God today. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We thank you for the word of the Lord today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We have been feasting all day long. From the very first minister session with Bishop Shoemake, the Copeland, and then here with Brother Booker. My, my, my. What powerful words we have heard today. And not just any man's words, but the anointed word of God. Hallelujah. It touches our hearts. It changes us. It makes us better people. Hallelujah. And if there's ever an hour, ever a day when we need to love one another, we are in that day. The enemy is attacking on every hand. Why would we attack one another? Why would we want to cut and slice and dice each other? I need you. I said, I need you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We need one another in the name of Jesus. Why don't we lift our hands one more time and thank the Lord for the word of God we have heard today. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you. Oh, God, we receive your word today. Oh, help us today to, Lord, apply the word that we have heard in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray.